Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Gerard V. Bradley, professor of law at Notre Dame Law School, giving a talk entitled The Culture of Religious Liberty. This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. The Culture of Religious Liberty. The story starts in 1965 with Dignitatis Humanae, the Council's declaration, the Church's declaration of religious freedom. And I say that it's innocent of culture. Innocent of culture. Now, in saying this, I don't mean to mimic the claim of the Australian scholar Tracy Rowland, among some other scholars, who say that, excuse me, that the Council Fathers, Rowland does, was naive about culture. Okay, Rowland's judgments, which are expressed mainly in her good book, Culture in the Thomist Tradition, deserve to be taken seriously. Now she expresses this judgment of hers, that the fathers were naive about culture, most pointedly in uh, that book, and it's really a charge or claim she makes about the social encyclicals of John Twenty-Third of the early 60s, and then especially Gaudium and Spes. Roland argues that John, and in turn the fathers, were insufficiently wary of modern culture, that they didn't really understand very well at all modern culture, that their aggiornamento was uncritical, and because unknowing, uh, inopportune, if not in fact, obviously not intention, but in fact a bit perilous. More prosaic writers have put this claim in a different way. They say that the fathers threw open the windows of the church just when the air began to stink. Now, Roland argues more specifically that the Father shared Pope John's belief in, and this is her phrase, the latently Christian orientation of the social trends of the 1950s. That the Fathers believed, as did John, she says, in the latently Christian orientation of the social trends of the 50s. Now, she quotes many texts in support of the claim uh, one is the opening address of John the 23rd the Vatican II, where John said, John 23rd, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations, which by men's own efforts are directed towards the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. And John said, everything leads to the good of the church. Now, the opening sentence of Dignitatis Humanae might seem to suffer from the same sort of naivete. That opening sentence is, a sense of the dignity of the human person has been impressing itself more and more deeply on the consciousness of contemporary man. That's Dignitatis Humanae, there citing John's Peace on Earth, Pacem now, John Courtney Murray's overall appraisal of Dignitatis Humanae lends some further support to this way of looking at the Council's work, and in particular, Dignitatis Humanae, this claim about cultural naivete, naive about culture. Murray said that the DH's achievement was simply to bring the church abreast of the developments that have occurred in the secular world. The fact is that the right to religious freedom had already been accepted and affirmed 
by the common consciousness of mankind, all sounding very much an aggiornamento. Now, there's nothing, in my opinion at least, nothing as far as I can see, nothing impious or anti-magisterial in Roland's criticisms, nothing un-Catholic in what Murray says, and it wouldn't be impious to say that they're right. But I think that they're both mistaken, at least about dignitatis humanae. I mean to say that dignitatis humanae is innocent of culture, and that creates problems. But I don't mean to say it's naive about culture. Now what do I think a little bit more about this charge, that the fathers, G.S., dignitatis humanae, are naive about culture? I think actually what Roland is pointing to and talking about is a real phenomenon, but I would describe it differently. I would describe it in words chosen by Francis Cardinal George at a conference at the JP2 Center in uh, DC in January of 2013, which I was present. So I don't know that these remarks of Cardinal George were published, but I, I heard him say this. He said that there was a kind of naivete at the council, but he thought it was really a naivete about the unity of the church itself and about the intrinsic appeal of the, of the gospel. That Cardinal George thought that that was the naivete about the unity of the church and the intrinsic appeal of the gospel. But more important, I think Dignitas Humanae is not an example of a giornamento at all. Now true, its first sentence, the first part of which <clears throat> I read to you just a minute ago, goes on to say, concludes that sentence does, with the observation that men increasingly demand <clears throat> that they be able to act on their own judgments in matters religious. Men demand that they act on their own judgments in matters religious. Now this is, I think, the central commitment, sort of the driving idea of dignitatis humanae. <clears throat> so in that sense, the first sentence does anticipate the heart of the document. Again, the heart of dignitatis humanae, its guiding insight or its animating insight, if you will, is this. Now I'm quoting from section three of dignitatis humanae. The exercise of religion of its very nature consists before all in those internal, voluntary, and free acts whereby man sets the course of his life directly towards God. So again, it's, it's authenticity in the religious life, authenticity of each one. That's the, the heart of Dignitatis Humanae. Now this might have been the mid-60s zeitgeist, although I actually have my doubts about that, but I don't doubt that the proposition about authenticity is true. And the second part of DH, the churchy part, the theological part, as opposed to the first part, which we often describe as the natural law part, but the second part we don't read, I think, as often as we ought to. But the second part of DH supplies ample evidence that it's not really, the, anim the animating insight, it's not from you know, sociology or contemporary demands, it's actually from scripture. I think D.H. is actually not a giornamento, but Rizal Smone. In the second part of Dignitatis Humanae, you could pick a bundle of quotations of your own, and I've picked a bundle as a sample. But this is the second part of D.H. The doctrine of freedom. This doctrine of freedom has roots in divine revelation. Rejecting all carnal weapons, the apostles followed the example of the gentleness and respectfulness of Christ, who bore witness to the truth but who refused to impose it. Section 11, that is. <clears throat> Further in 11, 
there's a premium here placed, these are my words, upon personal appropriation of the truth. And it seems to me that if that's not the case, then it's hard to make sense of, or at least to consider to be just, St. Paul's warning to each one of us, and this is repeated in DH11, each one of us is to render to God an account of himself. And that's Romans 4.12. Well, if we're, not, if we're going to be responsible before God for each, each one of us, well, then I guess we better make sure that each, each one of us does what we genuinely believe, authentically believe, to be right. Now, this truth about authenticity in religion, not as a moral norm, which it is better than not to attach or predicate a religious belief, that it's highly desirable, that religion be authentic. But notice the council is saying in DH, it's the nature of religion itself that it be voluntary, that it be free, that religious life be authentic. Now, no doubt this truth was eclipsed from time to time over the centuries by various social forces and by and through some faults on the part of the church. Here too, the second part of DH, section 12, I'm quoting from DH now. In the life of the people of God, as it has made its pilgrim way through the vicissitudes of human history, there has at times appeared a way of acting that was hardly in accord with the spirit of the gospel or even opposed to it." End quote. In his opening address to the council, Pope John XXIII, blessed John XXIII, asserted that these new conditions of modern life have at least the advantage of having eliminated those innumerable obstacles by which at one time the sons of this world impeded the free action of the church. So there in those two quotations, although sort of backwards and frontwards, the, the world has impeded the church, but the church has in a sense hamstrung itself. Now one cause of the eclipse, I call it, of authenticity in religious life and its value, its intrinsic connection to religion I think brings these two together. Social forces outside the church, you might say, the church itself, is Christendom. I mean, Christendom could be one cause of this eclipse because in Christendom, uh, political unity and religious orthodoxy are so intertwined that heterodoxy is tantamount to sedition. Nevertheless, now talking in DH's words, the doctrine of the church that no one is to be coerced into faith has always stood firm, and I think that's true. So the heart of DH is not the product of contemporary demands. Now one more reason why I think that DH is not an instance of aggiornamento is, is cultural. Now that sounds paradoxical, so let me tell you what I mean. I say cultural here to distinguish this source of DH from scripture, Course, but also from the more strictly intellectual groundwork for D.H. supplied before the council by, perhaps most prominently, John Courtney Murray, but, but among others, Murray. And I distinguish further what I mean by cultural source of D.H. from the heavy lifting done at, <clears throat> in the Vatican during the course of the D.H. debate by mostly the Western European bishops, not, not so much the American bishops. But I think American culture up to the late 50s, up to 1960, was essential to DH. In American culture, up to 1960 or so, maybe there's a, a long list of pluses and minuses, assets and liabilities, but I don't think it's an example 
of a kind of naive reception of liberal platitudes or a kind of uncritical reception of contemporary demands in consciousness. Now what I mean is that the American constitutional scheme, particularly the First Amendment, served as a kind of template for the fathers at the council. The fathers reported, now I'm reading from DH1, they reported that they searched into the sacred tradition and doctrine of the church to bring forth new things that are in harmony with things that are old and that they intended to develop the doctrine of the recent popes on individual rights of the human person and the constitutional order of society. So that's the first part of my claim, although this, the, the lesser part, about how American experience, if you will, was a template for a DH, talking here about the constitutional structure, the non-establishment constitutional structure. But I mean something more than that. I think all of the American cardinals and bishops in attendance at the council would have testified to the inestimable value to the church, to the Catholic faith of the American system. Now these prelates at the council might not have been as uncritical of America as Cardinal Gibbons quite frequently was, or as hyperbolic as Archbishop John Ireland at the turn of the 20th century was when Ireland said, here no tyrant casts chains around the church, no concordat limits her action or cramps her energy. Here she is free as the eagle upon the Alpine heights, free to unfold her pinions in unobstructed flight and to soar to loftiest altitudes. Well, I'm not saying the council fathers were quite so poetically inebriated as Archbishop Ireland, but I mean to say something very simple, and it's this, um, that up to about 1960 or so, the American prelates would have confirmed not a kind of intellectual correctness of the American constitutional structure, although perhaps they did think that, but rather that it has worked wonderfully for the American Catholic people. And I think that experiential verification, if you will, um, was instrumental or essential to D8, that the thought experiment could be conducted the other way around. What if the American prelates had reported that, well, they have to put up with the First Amendment, they can't stand it, and it's ruining the church in America? Anyway, I think probably around 1960 or so, I'd say before the November election, that was the, the last Catholic moment in American culture, and I'm afraid it'll be the last one we'll see for quite some time. Well, anyway, I say that D.H. is innocent of culture, not naive about culture, and that its innocence is a problem. What do I mean by that, innocence? Well, the document says nothing explicitly about culture. It doesn't address culture. The only two uses of the term culture in D.H. are the adjectival usage near the end of section four, where the, the document talks about the right of men freely to establish educational, cultural, charitable, and social organizations. The only other usage is in the penultimate paragraph of DH, which refers in a desultory way to men of different cultures and religions being brought together. Now just for example, compare this very lean, and, and I think both are inconsequential, references to culture um, to the copious, uh, look at the index of Gaudium and Spes when you get a chance under culture, and it goes on for about a full page. I mean, Gaudium and Spes is just all about culture. And Gaudium and Spes, of course, is promulgated the same day as Dignitatis Humanae. So at least you'd say the fathers, might, I realize they, they're developed over the course of the preceding two or three years, but they're promulgated on the same day, so you'd say, well, the fathers' minds 
uh, fixated on culture up to a very great point in Gaudium and Spes, and they say nothing about culture in DH. Now, why would this be? I think there are some plausible explanations for why in DH there's this innocence of culture, this sort of absence of references to culture. Well, an inventory first of references in DH to what might be described as culture, but which, where the term doesn't appear. Let's call this, does DH rely upon the concept of culture, although not using the word. I think, well, there are a few instances where I would say the concept of culture appears to be present, but it's, it's not any part of the solution that I propose, or it contributes to the problem that I'm, I'm very slowly describing for you. But the, we can inventory um, those instances. Now, the, the most important, you'd say, of these instances, where you might say there's the concept of culture, is near the very beginning of the document, where the fathers affirm the traditional doctrine concerning the moral duty of societies and men towards the true religion. But the key phrase there at the first part of the document, the moral duty of societies and traditional doctrine about that is affirmed by the fathers in D.H. <clears throat> but, I mean, I, I defer to the, the several of you present, including Kenny Grasso, uh, Saunders, and others present, Steve, who, who Phil Munoz, who, who know more about what the fathers might really have been trying to say there. I, mean, I, I know what they're talking about. They, they're, they're obliged to say something about the continuity of D.H. and its affirmation of freedom with the tradition, which certainly has strong establishmentarian strands in it. Uh, I understand that, uh, but that expression is a, is a bit obscure to me. But I can think of a few reasons why it is, as I assert it is, just sort of stillborn in the document. It's never developed in the document. Okay, one is that the, you know, the council fathers are clearly keen to paddle away from establishmentarian doctrines. Again, I don't say that DH is incompatible with public authority somewhere recognizing the truth of the Catholic faith. In fact, I don't think DH is incompatible with that, but clearly DH is not into that and is paddling away from it. It's paddling away from the kind of, even I say, cultural integralism that they, they saw at the time in Franco, Spain, and maybe a few other places, which again, I think they're paddling away from that. Um, unfortunately, in, in Gaudium and Spes, the fathers affirm and here I'm paraphrasing, I don't have a quote in front of me, but, but you'll recognize the idea from Gaudium and Spes, and indeed this, this has been developed since the council, for sure. Uh, but the autonomy of the various spheres of cultural and other kinds of activities uh, that, that Gaudium and Spes affirms and, and sort of desires what I would describe as secularism. That is to say, the, the emergence into its kind of own autonomy and freedom of the various spheres of life, cultural, scientific, academic. And you can see the Land O'Lake statement is really right in the mainstream of this way of thinking. It's a, it's a digression, but for what it's worth, Land O'Lakes is the 1967 Declaration of Independence of Catholic Universities, you might say, from the Magisterium. And it, the, one of the guiding ideas, if not the main guiding idea, is really from Gaudium and Spes, that, that the university life, academic life, and, and intellectual inquiry all should be bound by an internal dynamics and rules of engagement of their own, and then they, they march in this direction. <clears throat> and that it's not so much that I'm quarreling now with Land of Lakes, uh, where it says that, and this thing really can't be kind of submitting to the magisterium. 
I, I disagree with that, but, but actually, I'm not sure if I do, because that's actually the wrong way to think of it, right? I mean, you wouldn't separate off intellectual inquiry from the faith, and then say there's a question then about the faith's relationship to intellectual inquiry, and especially whether there should be some kind of subordination and, and superiority in that relationship. You'd actually say, no, once you separate the two, you've got a big problem, right? I mean, faith, the, the truth. The truth is internal to intellectual inquiry. But anyway, I just mean to say that Gaudium and Spes, and perhaps this seeps into DH, is looking to affirm the autonomy of various spheres of life. You can call that a disintegral cultural world. And again, that's one reason why I think that DH may be just sort of um, innocent of culture. But I would say, by way of good news, and if I'm going to, if I'm required to be optimistic, I, I think that, I don't know if Pope Francis has this in mind, and I don't, but he might, I just haven't noticed it. But certainly Benedict XVI, on many occasions in France, England, American bishops on their ad limina visit, on several occasions, you can see Benedict is trying to roll this back, right? I mean, Benedict is rolling back the secularism. Benedict said, now I'm paraphrasing, but he, he says it in almost these terms, you know, God's dominion extends to every sphere of life. And what Benedict described as, I think, a healthy secularity uh, in his visit to France really is that. It's really to bring all, all spheres of life under the control of ethics, to be sure, and really under the dominion of God. So I, I think Benedict is pushing back against this uh, sort of disintegral approach that I, I ascribe to GS, and I think is one reason why um, Dignitas Humanae is innocent of culture, in, as it turned out, a very unfortunate way. There are several other references in DH to the people and sort of the government's duty to foster the religious life of the people. One example from DH6, the government should help create conditions favorable to fostering the religious life in order that the people may actually uh, truly establish and exercise their rights and fulfill their duties. Um, there are several statements of that sort. They're important in their own ways, but these exhortations to public authority to foster and support and promote the religious life of the people is, is unhelpful to our cause, to my inquiry, because they refer to the fact of the matter about what it is people actually are professing. And in that sense, they're uncritical. Again, the government should foster the religious life of the people, whatever that actually is. And it lacks the kind of critical approach to culture and religious liberty that I, I think our times require. The stabilizing kind of culture that DH depends upon is not really within the bowels of these exhortations to support the just life of the people. Now, DH affirms the political common good um, in language taken largely, but not quite right, entirely, from John the 23rd, the political common good. You can find it in Mother and Teacher, in Peace on Earth, Pachamenteris. Political common good, uh, now as described in DH, the entirety of social conditions under which men may achieve their own perfection in a certain fullness of measure and also with some relative ease. So to be sure that this conception, definition, if that's what it is, of the political common good is, 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 is an anchor of DH. It's not a passing reference. I mean, it's really part of DH, to be sure. And I would affirm it. I do affirm it. Uh, but it's a bit opaque and not quite directly on the point that, that I'm worried about. 
And I'd say one more thing. This is quite faithful, this from D.H., the entirety of social conditions under which men may achieve their own perfection in a certain fullness of measure and also with some relative ease. This is quite faithful to mother and teacher, okay, from May 15th of 1961, but it actually isn't quite so faithful to Pachamenteris, which actually I think is a better expression, and it would have been better for D.H. if it adopted Pachamenteris' expression, definition, of the common good, because it spoke of integral perfection. So John Twenty-Third in Peace on Earth said, men composed as they are of bodies and immortal souls can never in this mortal life succeed in satisfying all their needs or in attaining perfect happiness. Therefore, the common good is to be procured by such ways and means which not only are not detrimental to man's eternal salvation, but which positively contribute to it. So again, P.T., Pachamenteris, talks of integral perfection and expressly invites the reader's eye and, well, mind to consider how to conceive of the common good in a way that involves transcendental reference to the, the truth of the matter, that men's salvation. Not there to the religious quest, as important as that is, but to salvation. Again, that's not what D.H. does. Now, in D.H., it talks about man's pursuing the truth about religion according to man's social nature. There should be a system of free theological discourse. There's you know, certainly a lot about the church in the second part of D.H. But I think here is really the, um, the heart of D.H. in terms of its operative norms, its meaning, its meaning on the ground. Everyone, anyone, all social groups, any human person, all of those actors, everyone, ought at all times to refrain from any manner of action which might seem to carry a hint of coercion or of a kind of persuasion that would be dishonorable or unworthy, especially when dealing with poor or uneducated people. Now, of course, D.H. is here talking not about just a civil right, and not about any kind of political right in, in the somewhat narrower sense of political rights, meaning a right good against the public authority. It's not a right just to immunity from coercion, which is a standard but clipped way of, of stating what's actually affirmed in Dignitatis Humana. It's immunity from coercion. And it's important to note that because people, me and you, Steve Crayson, my God, even Kenny Grasso, is not able, he's not really going to coerce other people into believing anything. It's a little bit hard to imagine how, how anybody really does coerce someone to believe. You can coerce people to say they believe things, but, but nonetheless, the focus on coercion is clipped because it makes us think it's about individuals and government, because government monopolizes legitimate force, right? But this is a natural right. Everybody has it, and it has to do with a duty incumbent on everyone else to avoid all manner of unworthy persuasion, etc. Now, this sounds a lot like leaving people alone. A lot like leaving them alone. And don't forget, the, the right affirmed, so to speak, is sort of each one has this right to authentically pursue, affirm, define, uh, you know, embrace religious truth. It, it looks like, and, and it is up to a significant point, each one being left alone maybe thereby justly being held to give an account to God 
at the judgment. Well, D.H. is innocent of culture. He doesn't say anything useful about culture. And to the extent one begins to try to infer what they think the culture around religious freedom would be or would look like, it would seem to be a culture of reticence, a culture of non-interference, a, a kind of individualism, of leaving people alone. And I think this is too bad. Now, D.H. reads, I say, as if religious liberty can be properly understood, actualized in society, and preserved over time without specific cultural supports. It's as if D.H. doesn't have a requisite cultural baggage. Now, it's a universal right, and it pertains to each one's right against coercion and manipulation, unworthy persuasion, and it's, it corresponds to everyone's duty not to do those things, not to coerce. Now, that all swings free as a set of propositions from any cultural context. And indeed, according to D.H., the second part of it at least, in a dramatically different context than our own, ancient Palestine circa 30, 60, and 70, Paul and the apostles, you know, the D.H. says there, Jesus and the apostles affirm this exact freedom in radically different cultural circumstances. So again, it, it, the propositions certainly don't depend for their meaning upon a particular cultural context. You can express them in different languages, but nonetheless, I think that's all clear enough. But I'm talking about, as I said, properly understood, actualized in society, and in fact, preserved over time. That requires a surrounding, specific, highly agreeable culture. Making it intelligible to people and practically available to them depends upon a very particular cultural milieu, one which is rapidly disappearing from the United States and elsewhere across the world. Now, I suggest that we think of a culture of religious liberty as needed, and I mean to describe what that would look like, and I mean that we should, I suggest that we think about a culture of religious liberty as, um, I'm gonna get singular and plural mixed up, the culture is, or comprised of, a set of stabilizers, sort of gyroscopic course settings, but stabilizers, as if on a racing car or airplane, without which the vehicle veers radically off course with often disastrous results. Well, um, how should we get to what this culture of religious liberty might look like? Well, it's pretty clear that, as I said, that the, the heart of the norms laid down is freedom from. And no doubt this is not a kind of um, accidental um, mainstay of the document. <clears throat> All of the responses of the drafting commission is during the development of Dignitas Humanae at the council I'm talking about, where there are lots of objections lodged from members of the council, the, 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 the fathers gathered, the bishops, archbishops, and cardinals. Uh, there are a lot of um, objections lodged, um, probably uh, many of which had to do with the difficulty that was perceived by the objector in reconciling the new teaching, so to speak, um, with the older affirmations about um, not so much establishment, but rather that error has no rights, um, 
But in, in sort of dealing with and rebutting these objections, the fathers who were managing the document, I'm thinking especially of Bishop de Schmet, uh, repeatedly said that the object of the right, which is affirmed, is immunity from coercion, not the content of this or that religion. Not the content or set of answers, if you will, to the religious question. Now, fair enough, and that, in a sense, doesn't solve the problem of error has no rights. It's just a bypass. I mean, it transcends the way of thinking when you're thinking, well, isn't it the case that error has no rights? And as the fathers, in response, just met especially, said, well, we're not saying error has rights. We're really talking about something else. And the right of immunity from coercion doesn't attach to a particular set of religious propositions, which could be either true or erroneous. We're talking about people. And we're talking about the people and the sort of religious quest. So that, I think, is fine. But it, it sort of contributes to the problem, then, of this kind of innocence of culture. But of course, it's a freedom from. But if you look at the document, it's easy to see that the freedom from is in service of a freedom for. And that's the beginning, the first of the two steps I have to offer before Q&A about how do we imagine constructing, what would a culture of religious liberty look like, and what might we do to construct it? Um, but freedom for. It's easy to see that religious liberty as a right is actually comprised of two duties. That really, I mean, I don't mean that as a sort of clever thing to say at about 10 to 10 in the morning, or you know, kind of a headline read. Um, it's literally true. I mean, I mean that quite seriously. The right of religious liberty is two duties. The first is the one we've been talking about, right? Mainly, at least. The duty of everybody to refrain from coercing or interfering, manipulating in any other unworthy way, trying to conscript another person's conscience, if you will, to impose a religion on them, which that person doesn't personally sort of authentically affirm. Well, we got that. That's the one duty. That's, that's really the freedom from. But the second is the duty of everyone with regard to religion. The freedom for men to carry out their duty to seek the truth in religious matters. Now, this duty is splayed all across the first part of Dignitatis Humanae. It's a moral duty. It's a strict and overriding one. But it's not talked about nearly as much as it ought to. But it's clearly what the freedom from is for. So examples of what I mean. I'm just reading promiscuously, if I dare say that, um, from the first part of DH. But here we go. This duty, the duty to seek truth in religious matters. These are all quotes. All men are bound to seek the truth, especially in what concerns God and his church, and to embrace the truth they come to know and to hold fast to it. Another quote. All men are impelled by nature and also by moral obligation to seek the truth, especially religious truth. They are also bound to adhere to the truth once it is known and to order their whole lives in accord with the demands of the truth. This is what the freedom from is for. The freedom from is the space which men and women need to perform their duty. This high, strict, and I think overriding, moral duty to the truth, to themselves. We could, we'll leave aside for the moment who's the moral duty running to, is it to oneself, to God, to the truth, to others? Maybe the answer is yes and no. 
but nonetheless, it doesn't affect the, the crispness and force behind the affirmation. Everyone has this duty. I think this relationship between freedom from, for, is very structurally similar to what we mean when we talk about parents' rights, whether it's in a, a kind of legal context or in a moral context, parents' rights. By that, we, I think we usually mean that parents also need a space. They need an immunity from outside interference in their family just so that they can raise their children and carry out their manifold duties to their children. So that, that's what I think is a structural similarity. Parents' rights don't have anything to do with a kind of uh, mommy and daddy's prerogative or freedom to invent themselves as if they're standing at a kind of sort of um, fork in the road and they can sort of just choose uh, according to whim or anything else what they might become or anything of that sort. I mean, it reminds me of one of my favorite yogiisms, you know, Yogi Berra, the master of the Malaprop. Um, one of my favorite yogiisms is when he's asked to give directions and somebody, somebody in Times Square stops him and says, well, how do I get to the Metropolitan? meaning the Met, you know, the museum. Yogi is alleged to have said, alleged by Yogi, by the way, uh, well, just keep going this way till you come to a fork in the road and then take it. Um, <laughs> but that's what I mean, a kind of prerogative, like just, just do what you want. No, no, I mean, parents' rights really have to do with not interfering with their performance of their duties. Well, anyway, I think that's the same structural setup as in DH. So it's easy to see then that essential to, as I say, kind of appreciating what the freedom from is for, and actually really knowing what religious liberty therefore is, and how a society, including, especially in these remarks, the culture might be thrown up around it. Well, obviously you need a culture that's characterized by at least these three things. And you judge for the moment whether we have a culture of this sort. Okay, one um, is that religion be considered a zone of truth. Just a zone, a zone of truth. But religion's about truth. It's not about, it's not mainly uh, tradition or tribal customs, personal or group identity. It's not about emotions and feelings of empowerment. It's not about edifying fables. It's not a kind of verbal tissue which connects you to your forebears. I mean, religious traditions, religious churches, faiths, can have some of those properties, and I don't mean to deny that within the religious life of persons and groups, you can have those feelings or realities, you know, feelings of belonging to my, the faith of my fathers. I mean, I don't mean to deny that these things can, can have value, you know, in their proper place, but it, they're not a religion. Religion's about truth. And, you know, the second would be, obviously, that we need to have a culture which sort of holds out, and um, I don't say enforce, but holds out as obligatory the moral duty to seek out the truth and to embrace it. And the third mainstay of a culture of religious liberty would be that religious truth and religious liberty would be distinguished from other sorts of truth and from the rights of conscience. Conscience is different. Conscience is valuable too, but it's different. So a little bit more about these three mainstays, and then I can't see the clock, but I'll be done and we'll, we can just talk. By zone of truth, I mean that the religion and the Catholic faith, obviously especially, includes assent to propositions about the way things really are. It's another way of saying that religion is about reality. If you don't like the term truth, just use the term reality. Religion's about reality. The different faiths are really different accounts of that reality, including most especially those parts of reality which are impervious to, to scientific measurement and truth. Uh, 
important nonetheless, indeed more important than those realities that can be measured and touched. These invisible realities, which can be known, many of which can only be known to humankind by God's self-disclosure, by revelation. But religion is answerable to the truth about the universe. It's about the universe. It's about reality. And to logical coherence with what we know with certitude to be true. So those are the, the two features. Reality, truth, and our understanding that is our grasp, our affirmations, that is our religion, should be coherent with what we know with certitude to be true. Now establishing and maintaining religion as a zone of truth is going to be very heavy going in our culture. But without it, religion in its free exercise collapse into something much more like personal identity. In his 2010 Christmas address to the Roman Curia, Pope Benedict XVI put it this way, if religious freedom were to be considered an expression of the human inability to discover the truth, it would thus become a canonization of relativism. I affirm that I, I am not quibbling with um, the former Holy Father, the Pope Emeritus, but you could, the word subjectivism could be put in place of relativism and it would mean it would be just as true. That if religion is not sort of true and operating in a zone of truth, free exercise of religion is so likely to collapse into personal identity. This is, it's, it's going to collapse into subjectivity. And in our culture, that's exactly what everybody, everybody wants, right? I mean, we live in a culture in which it's sort of it's careening down into the abyss of subjectivity. This is the great cultural temptation. You see it in the Supreme Court. You see it in the law generally. You see it in coming, coming off the lips of so many people who talk about religion. It's subjective. Um, we live in a culture in which not only is religion become spirituality or unchurched religion, so it's, it's, it's subjectivized. Consumer behavior is subjectivized. It's about subjectivity. Relationships and sexuality, subjectivity. Social media, subjectivity. Identity, subjectivity. Where the trick is that authenticity so attributed is itself the, the measure of truth, right? That being authentic, in that sense, subjectivity. Being individual, being authentic, is the truth as opposed to the means by which the truth of religion really is to be enjoyed and, infer and affirmed. Um, so the instrument, the necessary and vitally important instrument that is the authenticity of religion has become the end. So without religion as truth, it's, religious liberty is going to careen, collapse into this kind of identity project. Okay, now the moral responsibility to seek the truth about divine things I said we can put aside, I think, for the moment, whether that runs to you, me, to God, to the truth itself, to the community. Uh, but I want to give you uh, one quote to sort of burnish what I, what I have to say about it. I mean, I, I say that if there is this moral duty, it's strict, and from DH you can see it's an overriding moral duty. It's, it's the strongest moral duty. Indeed, it can require us to undergo all sorts of trials and death, right? So you hold, when it says hold fast to the truth, um, even to death. But Watiwa, uh, then, then the, well, the young Archbishop of Krakow, uh, Karol Watiwa intervened in the course of the discussion of DH um, at the council and speaking on behalf of the entire, at this point, on, on, the entire, on behalf of the entire Polish bishops' conference. Watiwa, and my Latin translation is, is poor, but some, one or two of you, perhaps more, will recognize the parts 
that I'm, I'm attempting to translate so poorly and, and, and have a better translation of what Watiwa is saying, but I'm sure of this much. Watiwa was saying that the liberty protected in DH is so large, maximal, maximus, because man's relationship to God is of maximal importance. Maximal. Now, I, 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 think, I think it's like saying overriding, the most important, but he used the term maximal. So the duty and the entailed liberty in DH, maximal, because this relationship, maximal, I say overriding. Now the third, distinguish conscience and truth in other respects, other domains, from religious truth and religious liberty. Now religious liberty collapses into conscience under sort of the ages and under the influence of these first two things, right? Um, if you have a moral duty to oneself to be, that is discover, and to be oneself, in that respect, the, the sort of personal identity project. Again, the, the earmark of value there is that it's simply you. This is, you know, the discovery of the really, really me. Um, well, then that's something, in the, it's a sibling, a kind of bastard sibling, if you will, to a true understanding of conscience. Uh, but we've now bastardized conscience, and unfortunately we're making it a kind of synonym for religion, religious liberty. So I just say as a phenomenon, I just draw your attention to, maybe I've even said it, uh, so I don't attribute such bad motives or, or kind of moral, immoral indifference to language, to people who talk about what's at stake in the HHS mandates lawsuits, right? Good people say, what's well, about rights of conscience? Uh, it's actually not right about rights of conscience. It's, it's actually about a right to free exercise of religion, to the extent it's not about that, it's actually, I think, about a right not to be made complicit in injustice. It's actually not about conscience in any useful sense. It's those two things. It's the free exercise of religion, including the, the exercise of religion in the sense of public witness. Um, and otherwise, I think it's a right not to be complicit in injustices, you know, especially abortion, the early abortions that are accomplished by and through L and, some, and IUD and other things. But conscience, here, I want to read us a little bit more from Benedict's uh, 2010 uh, greeting to the Curia, in which he, at that point, his mind is going back to his visit to England for the beatification of John Henry Newman. So it's, it's, it's not a long quotation, but there are a few sentences. But it's what I mean when I say about the, the requirement that a culture of religious liberty securely distinguish conscience, especially as conscience is paraded around in our time from this right we're talking about in Dignitatis Humanae. So this is Benedict speaking, again, to the Curia, Christmas 2010. In modern thinking, the word conscience signifies that for moral and religious questions, it is the subjective dimension, the individual, that constitutes the final authority for decision. The world is divided into the realms of the objective and the subjective. Religion and morals lie within the subjective realm. Here, it is said, there are, in the final analysis, no objective criteria. The ultimate instance that can decide here is therefore the subject alone. And precisely this is what the word conscience expresses. expresses. In this realm, only the individual, with his intuitions and experiences, can decide. Close quote for now. That's subjectivity. Now, Benedict again, now referring to Newman and using Newman as his text, you might say, to talk about conscience. But Benedict now making assertions. 
Conscience is both capacity for truth and obedience to the truth which manifests itself to anyone who seeks it with an open heart. The path of Newman's conversion is a path of conscience, not a path of self-asserting subjectivity, but on the contrary, a path of obedience to the truth. But again, now here, going back to 94, Veritatis Splendor, uh, Pope John Paul, Blessed John Paul II said, once the idea of a universal truth about the good, knowable by human reason, is lost, inevitably, inevitably, the notion of conscience also changes. So, in sum, in closing, um, you've probably figured out, well, I've even tipped you off, where this is heading, right? And the combined effect of affirming religious liberty in a society which lost, has lost its cultural purchase, its hold on this tripod of commitments that I've described. Religion's zone of truth. The moral duty overriding maximal to seek and affirm and embrace that whole truth in season and out. And distinguishing conscience, especially because now it's identical to subjectivity from religious, religious liberty. Well, when you've lost your hold on this tripod, what's going to happen is, is what has happened. It's the subsumption of religious freedom into something like the world-defining sovereign self, which the Supreme Court described in 1992 in the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Okay, in this view, and I just mean to say that we're on the, the cusp of this collapse which means probably it's happened in some respects and in some cases, but it's not an entire or wholesale collapse, but it's collapsing before our eyes. That dignitas humanae, you might say, is collapsing into the mystery passage before our eyes. And it's exactly why we're having, we're experiencing or undergoing the threats to freedom of religion that we are, right? So all too briefly, what's at stake in Hobby Lobby, just for example, and any of the cases that arise due to the um, same-sex marriage, insurgency, um, and believers who are kind of trying to live their lives without getting kind of caught up entirely in complicity uh, with falsehoods about whether it's life uh, or marriage and, and or injustices about life or falsehoods about marriage. Um, what you're really seeing now is something very different than what we saw in cases and in public life and in public discourse even just 10 years ago. I mean, it used to always be the paradigm case of religious freedom in law and in culture was the one that the Supreme Court has granted review in just a few weeks ago and will be decided next term, because Hobby Lobby's this term being decided by June. But for next term, the court picked up and took a case, which is the typical case from the past. It's a Muslim prisoner who wants to grow a half-inch beard. And in general, beards are not allowed for security reasons and maybe for other uniformity reasons in the prison. Prison authorities have agreed, as a kind of compromise, we can have a quarter-inch beard. So he says, no, that's not enough. I need to have a half-inch beard because that's what I'm required to have. So we have a case about a quarter inch of stubble on a man's face, okay? But okay, but what's on the other side? Well, on the other side is a kind of administrative regularity and diffuse, which is not to say unreal, but diffuse concerns of security and maybe uniformity of treatment, so that if we let the Muslim guy have a half-inch beard because he thinks that he's required to, what about somebody says, well, I don't think I'm required to, but I really feel like that would be well, that would be me. I want a beard. I feel, I feel more manly when I have a beard. And people make fun of me at home when I don't. Well, you'd say, well, okay, well, if we let the Muslim guy have it, then you should. So that's the way in which, you know, the uniformity of appearance is maybe at stake. But that's typical of these challenges in the past. The individual, usually, 
usually a bit quirky, um, not sort of the whole of the Christian population as we see now with you know, marriage and other issues like that, but rather the quirky person. And on the other side is sort of government interests in efficiency and regularity and a certain uniformity. But now, of course, it's all quite different. What we have now are plaintiffs who really assert to be, they claim to be exercising and claiming an adverse impact upon the same right on the other side. So the Greens who run Hobby Lobby say, look, we really can't be the kinds of Christians that we really, really have to be if we're being made to do this. And although I think that it's, it's, it's going to be defeated by argument and should be defeated by argument, the claim on the other side is very similar. It's women saying, look, we're exercising a right to be who we want to be. We're exercising rights of autonomy and freedom and trying to achieve the kind of identity that we want to achieve so that the women who are the beneficiaries of the mandate are exercising a right of conscience, if you will, or even a right of religious freedom, like the Greens. And that's typical in the sense you have people or conflicts of rights, conflicts of different exercises of the same right, which is what happens when the thing collapses along the lines or in the path that I'm describing. That's the prescription for the future. That's what we're going to be looking at. And that's why I think somehow extricating ourselves from this impasse, if, if you will, is essential. So what we ended up a little bit more formally, in the view that results of religious liberty once this thing has collapsed, or as I say, DH is innocent about culture. I don't know what the assumptions of any of the fathers were, but perhaps a healthy culture was presupposed as background so they needn't say anything in DH about it. And of course, it's meant to be universal, so what would you say about culture that didn't seem particular and not universal? Well, for whatever reason, you have this lacuna in DH, and we have the collapse of American culture and Western culture generally. So DH is collapsing. Indeed, one way, we were just talking very briefly last night, some of the other people here, and somebody put the question this way, if they may have been Kenny Grasso, well, maybe DH is becoming irrelevant. Well, maybe. That's real meaning is now just beyond the wall. You can't see its real meaning. And it's really not available as an operative way to think about religious liberty. But once it all collapses, then religious acts are thought to have the same dignity and value as do the various choices, relationships, acts, communications, in which people express in non-religious ways their deepest selves or in which they actualize their deepest desires, or in which they display their most self-defining thoughts or emotions. That in this way, there's, an there's a kind of larger oh, value attributed to authenticity and identity. In this view, picking up now my colleague John Finnis's phrasing, religion's status and immunity are as instances of the only really basic human good the only really intrinsically worthwhile end at stake or in view, namely, setting for oneself one's stance in the world. See, for example, Benedict talking about Newman. So that's it. Um, I stand ready to uh, be accused of pessimism. Um, if you want to be optimistic, um, there's reason for optimism. And I'll just say that in the last 10 years or so, I'm talking now about the, from the Pope on down, uh, JP2 and Benedict the 16th have talked very often about culture and religious liberty. That's a very common topic. 
um, culture and religious liberty. Benedict XVI said most recently in this sort of skein of uh, remarks that religious liberty is an achievement of a sound political and juridical culture. So I, that's optimism. I mean, there's a recognition on the part from the popes on down and many scholars, those of you who are working in these fields, um, we can see now what we're up against and that part of getting the law right, for example, will require speaking of religious liberty in proper terms in legal context, but then seeing how in the culture we can promote religion as a zone of truth. Everybody has the moral duty to seek the truth about God, and it's not the same thing as conscience. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.